On Friday, I went to hear one of the most intriguing commentators, communicators about what's going on in American culture today. Remind me later to tell you what he said. People are always trying to communicate. They're always trying to send a message. And I always look around to see what are the messages that people are sending. The other day I was driving to church and I went by this car and there's a message that they were sending. You're funny. You're funny. You're funny. Why do they want to send that message to everybody? I don't know. I texted it to Adam because I think Adam sometimes is funny. You're funny. And then I had, this, I had this one down at the oceanfront. You're awesome. You're awesome. I was feeling pretty awesome receiving that message. You're awesome until I hit his bumper and it wasn't so awesome anymore. I was getting a little too close to the bumper to take the picture. But then the more interesting message was this one. It's not even in words. It's in symbols. It's, it's, this is an old Buick and, and this, this elderly gentleman was sitting in the, the driver's seat. His, his wife was getting into the car and I had to walk over and say, sir, do you need help? Uh, he, uh, he has this, this witch head that's there attached to the front bumper of his old Buick. He's got sort of a shrunken head thing, sort of a weird figure on the other side. And he turned to me and he said, my wife wanted to do this. Uh, there is a couple in dire need of therapy. Uh, the only thing holding them together is the front bumper of their car. It's the only thing they can agree on. But people are sending messages all the time. You're funny. You're awesome. I don't know what I'm doing with my life anymore. Why is it that on the front page of today's New York Times, there's an article about faith and life. There's an article trying to communicate something. In 1993, a young man who was 19 years old at the time went out on a, on a warm summer evening and sought out someone who could give him spiritual advice and sought out someone who could give him some answers to the questions that he was pondering. And so this young man goes out to the suburbs of Boston, Massachusetts. He tracks down Mitt Romney and the rest of the article tells the tale of how Mitt Romney gave his spiritual advice and mentoring to this young man. But why is that smack on the front page of the New York Times? An article about faith, about life, about questions that people have. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? Why is heaven is for real on the best seller list? And it's been there for a long time. Why is it that people want to know about God and about heaven? Are you ready to risk it all on what you think is true? People do that all the time. Or are you ready to risk it all on the words a man named John wrote down 2,000 years ago? People do that all the time, too. It's quite a decision that you're making. Hopefully you realize truth is always radical and requires a radical decision. It's always been that way. It will be that way again today. Let me tell you a radical story about an encounter that took place 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Imagine you're in Jerusalem yourself during the Passover that was about 30 AD. Imagine you're seeing things that are absolutely baffling crowds of people. One of the most astounding was the turning of water to wine at a wedding in a small town of Cana outside of Jerusalem. Word of that miracle spread quickly. And even today, when you visit the site, you can take a tiny cup of wine to remember and commemorate that miracle. John records these words in chapter 2, verse 23. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the festival, many believed in his name, 
when they saw the signs which he did. And so Jesus was there and they were, they were seeing these, these signs. They were seeing things that they had never seen before. They were watching a man do things that, that they had never seen someone do before. He drove the money changers out of the temple and there was a big stir. There was that, that miracle of the water to wine in Canaan and that word had gotten around and, and word was spreading that he is different. He is someone to be reckoned with and some are believing because of signs and some are believing because in their heart they want to know what can they build their lives on that really matters? They know they can't build it on the political climate. They know and they're struggling in their religion to try to figure out what is it all about that God's trying to communicate to us. And now in this moment, something different is happening. Somebody has shown up who seems to have answers, even though those answers are radically different than the status quo. And so let's look at John 3 as a four-act play with an epilogue and try to understand what some of the questions were that were driving this man named Nicodemus who we're just about to meet, and what some of the answers were that Jesus was about to give him. John 3, Act 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. Just using that, that address, rabbi, was important because it shows respect. It shows and accords a dignity to Jesus. See, here's a, a teacher who's teaching the truth that he knows and understands about God and faith and life. And he goes to Jesus because he wants to learn. He wants to figure out some, some new things maybe about his life. And he's just not sure of what's happening. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the, miracul the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Maybe Nicodemus was on the edge of the crowd as Jesus drove the money changers from the temple. Maybe he had a relative in Cana who was at that wedding who, who was able to get word back to him about something so miraculous that had never been done before. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, the King James Version of the Bible, which is celebrating its 400th anniversary this year, puts it this way. Verily, verily, I say unto you. In other words, this is really, really, really the truth. You can build your life on this. This is going to be radically different, but you need to really understand this. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Nicodemus is asking between his words a question that Jesus begins to answer. Jesus puts a hook in Nicodemus' soul and begins to draw him in. Who are you and where are you going? That's what's, what Nicodemus is, is asking. That's what he's really going after. Who are you? Where are you going? This is so different than anything I grew up with. This is so different than my understanding of my faith and what my faith has always been about. Who are you, Jesus? And where are you going? And so Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Act two, how can a man be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. And so maybe he's, he's pushing back against Jesus' statement, or maybe he's just trying to, to juxtapose some, some thoughts that, 
that just don't make sense with what Jesus is saying. It doesn't make sense. And, and so there's this tension that's beginning to build, a tension that's over life and faith and the future and heaven. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, verily, verily, I say unto you, this is really the truth, this is radical, but you can build your life on this, Nicodemus. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. A woman has a baby, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And that term, born again wasn't out in left field. It's easily translated born anew or born from above. And, and people knew that if somebody was going to convert from uh, a religion that wasn't, um, that was outside of, of Judaism, that that person would become a, a convert, a follower. They would begin something new. It would be in essence as if this convert would start a new life. This convert would be for a few months, maybe a year, a, a baby in the faith as they begin to learn the under, underpinnings of the faith. So it's not that, that this concept born again is so strange or different. What's strange and different is that Jesus is addressing this concept to someone who should be well grounded in faith. Jesus is, is putting this this concept out before a teacher and a leader, as it says in, in the very first verse of, of John 3. This man is a, he's a leader. The word is, is leader. And why would Jesus say, maybe you're missing it. Maybe you're missing it, teacher. Maybe you're missing it, person who's been following all these things for all this time. Maybe you just blew right past everything God wanted you to know. And right now, you're headed to a place called nowhere land. And unless you turn around, you're going to be lost. That's what was really strange about this conversation. And Nehemiah is starting to feel a little put off and a little put back and a little derailed. And uh, it's as if Jesus says, let me tell you how to get to heaven. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is the born ultimatum. This is Jesus laying it on the line. This is Jesus trying to make it really, really clear to Nicodemus that his, his life is hanging in the balance here that maybe he doesn't have it together. And, and, and as Jesus says these words to Nicodemus, who, who knew tradition, who knew theology, who knew the answers to big questions that had been posed for hundreds and thousands of years, he puts the same thing to you. Do you know where it is that you're going? Do you know and understand what this is all about, this thing that you call life? This is a very politically incorrect Jesus, and it's a very politically incorrect message in the world in which we live today. Because we live in America where people make up their minds about whatever it is that they want to make up their minds about. And people decide on their own futures. And you can't tell anybody what to do. You can't tell somebody what to be. And I meet people all the time that say, I think this about God. And I think that about God. And I usually say something that makes them upset. I usually say, well, it's really good that you want to believe that. But that's not necessarily true. Because whatever is true is true. And that just happens to be what you believe. 
and sometimes they get mad at me, or sometimes they just make faces at me. But then I say something like, you can, you can disbelieve that there's a place called Los Angeles, California, but it's still there, and then they get more mad at me. You know, because it, it, it has nothing to do with what you believe. It has to do with what is true. And so you have to go to a source for this truth. You have to go to a place where there's radical truth for you to build your life on. And Jesus says, this is the radical truth. This is the born ultimatum. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. There's a word there for wind and spirit. It's actually the same word. The only way you define the word is by the context in which the word is used. And so Jesus says, okay, we have wind and it blows and it goes wherever it wants to go. And, and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And so it is with those who are born of the Spirit of God. This isn't logical, Nicodemus. Leave your theological books at home. This isn't logical, Nicodemus. It's not going to help you that you can say Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This isn't logical, Nicodemus. It's not going to help you that you know all about Moses and the story of Moses. Right now, it's all about you. Right now, you're on the spot. You think you're the teacher? You came to the place where you can be taught radical truth, a truth that you can build the rest of your life on if you really want to pay attention. Act three. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. In other words, I don't get it. What are you talking about? I've grown up with this tradition. I've been to school for all this. I teach people this stuff. What is it that you are talking about? I don't have a clue. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do, do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? It's not logical, Nicodemus. You got to come outside of your box if you want to meet me here. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. And so he refers to himself. But then he feels sorry for Nicodemus. So he, he gives him a hint. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And he gives him a hint. He says, you remember Moses? I know you know Moses. I know you know this story. And the story is found in Numbers chapter 21, where the, the people are being bitten by snakes because of their disobedience and their grumbling. And so they go to Moses and they, they beg for mercy. And God tells Moses to, to create this bronze snake that he puts up on a pole. And when the people go and they look at the bronze snake, they are healed. They get their lives back. They are are healthy once again as they look upon the snake. And it wasn't that the power was in the bronze snake. It was that the snake was symbolic of you have to look to something outside of yourself if you want to have life. And God's the only one who can give you life. And they got back their physical life. And Jesus makes that transition there. He makes that transition to eternal life. And he says, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Let me give you a hint, Nicodemus, of what's going on 
here. And I think Nicodemus's heart started to beat fast because it's not that you come with your head, it's that you come with your heart. I think he started to realize that, that he was in a different place and that this place was gonna either make him or break him. It was gonna crush him or it was gonna give him something new that he could live the rest of his life for. And so Jesus lays it on the line, act four, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Truth is always radical, always. This is something that the world rejects. It's something that the world rebels against, but it doesn't matter. This is the truth. What are you going to do with the truth, Nicodemus? What are you going to do with the truth? What am I going to do with the truth? Remember the first time I heard this truth, didn't make any sense to me. I was trying to make logical sense out of it. I asked all the questions. What about the people way over there? What about them? What about the guy way up on a mountain somewhere and he never hears any of this stuff? What about him? And finally, I exhausted my, my logical defenses against this, this radical truth. And finally, I stood there and the truth asked me the question, what about you, Michael? What are you gonna do with this? And I realized that it had nothing to do with where I came from. It had nothing to do with what I could create in my mind. It had everything to do with my heart as I began to understand who Jesus was and what he was saying and what he was trying to, to ask me to do with my life. Epilogue. We're back to John the Baptist now as we get to the end of John chapter three. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The best man and the, the groom are good friends and, and they're excited about this very special day. And John the Baptist uses that analogy to say, that joy is mine and it is now complete because he knows that, that Jesus is who he is, the Lamb of God who is coming into the world to save the whole world. And so he utters these words that become one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. He must become greater, I must become less. In the King James Version, he must increase, but I must decrease, which I believe is, is even more poignant. He must increase, but I must decrease. Literally translated out, it is he must grow, I must diminish. And for John the Baptist, he was soon to go to prison. He was soon to lose his life. And it meant something different to him maybe at that point than it means to us as I look at this, I realize that it's the same radical truth today that it was then. 
Jesus Christ must grow and grow and grow and grow in our lives and and our selfishness and our self-interest must diminish and diminish and diminish and diminish till when we start to think, we think his thoughts and when we start to live, we live his life and we become his hands and his feet and we're a light in the world like he was a light in the world because we're living with him and through him and in him. We're doing all things and that That goes back to the idea of born again, born from above. We're supposed to have a new life based upon the life of God, the life that God gives to us, the life that God infuses into our hearts becomes the life that we live. And we don't ever do that perfectly. We don't ever do that perfectly. It's why we need forgiveness all the time. But we rise to each new day saying, He must grow, I must diminish. He must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. And we begin to have a life that's like no other life on the planet. It's a life lived out of the very call of God, the breath of God, the motivation of the Holy Spirit drives us and we don't always know which way we're going. We're like the wind, the winds of the Spirit blow and we go and we see things that God asks us to do and we do them. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not by works that any man should boast, wrote Paul. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared beforehand for us to do. The epilogue continues in John 12. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. So again, there's always this tension. Yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear. They would be put put out of the synagogue. There's always a fear that we're going to lose something. There's always a fear that somebody's going to take something away from us if we fully disclose this kind of faith in radical truth. But the radical truth informs us that there is no loss, really. There's nothing you can lose that isn't worth losing. So let it go and follow after this one who wishes to give you the kingdom and give it to you here as well as there. And so it says, then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. It's radical truth. It's politically incorrect in its very formation because it says you must, you have to, you have to go this way or you risk losing everything. But it is the truth of God through his son, Jesus Christ. I was at the Regent University Executive Leadership Series on Friday and I heard Frank Luntz, he's a pollster, political consultant. He's one of the most honored communication professionals in the United States today. He's on the news. He's written books. Uh, He's got three New York Times bestsellers, words that work. It's not what you say, it's what people hear. What Americans really want, really, 
and win the key principles that take your business from ordinary to extraordinary. And I like to hear communicators, and I wanted to know what this man would communicate to me. What would he tell me about life? What would he tell me about the meaning of life and the hope of life and the purpose of life? And I got a little, little worried when he walked close to me and I saw that he was wearing these sneakers. I thought, how could anybody wearing bright yellow and red sneakers know anything? They're gonna come up here any second. There they are. Anything, how could anybody know anything about life when they're wearing sneakers like that? But then and I thought, if he's secure enough to wear those sneakers, he must know something. You know? He was to my right, yellow sneakers. Pat Robertson was to my left, cowboy boots. I was wearing Cole Hans. Something was going to happen. <laughs> so he talked about, at the very end of his, of his amazing discussion about our culture and, and what, what's really going on in our, in our culture today, in the economy, and the political realm, he said, this is what people really want from you. And I took a picture of it so I would have this and capture it. He said, this is what people really want today in our culture. They want accountability in what you do. That's been a biblical principle forever. And you see in this passage in John chapter 3, Jesus holding Nicodemus accountable to his calling as a teacher. If you're going to teach people then you better teach them the right stuff and you better know what you're talking about, Nicodemus. So let me tell you what it's all about, Nicodemus. I am holding you accountable to your calling. It's through and through scripture accountability. God held Adam and Eve accountable in the garden. He holds you and me accountable today. He said people want fierce integrity. They want principles in every area of life, in all you are doing. They want to see principles that work, that are the right things to build life on. The Bible for thousands of years has given us principles. They're the only principles that we can really build life on. If you find a principle over here and it works, you can trace it back to the Bible. That's where it found its origin. He said people really want respect for the customer. Translated, God respects our free will. God respects our free will so much that if someone turns away and walks away from him and doesn't believe, he will respect that. He will agonize over that and shed tears over that, but he will respect that. It's a biblical principle. What people really want is for us to be independent. They want they want their leaders. They want people who are, are held accountable to be independent without bias. Here's one of the greatest independent statements you will ever read in your life, without bias. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. It doesn't say God loved an ethnic group. It doesn't say God loved Republicans. It doesn't say God loves America. It doesn't say God loves your favorite team. It says for God so loved the world. He has reached out to every single person on the planet that they might know him and live forever. And finally, he said, people really want measurable results. People want to be able to say at the end, so it was worth it. 
It was worth it to give my life to this. It was worth it to pay taxes. It was worth it to have this investment with you and your company. It was, it was worth it that I gave time and energy uh, and, and my resources and volunteered. It was worth it. People want to know it was worth it. And God wants you to know it was worth it. It was worth it. That's why we created the church, the body of Christ. It was worth it. That's why we feed hungry people and clothe naked people and visit people who are sick and in prison. It was worth it. At the end of your life, you're going to stand before an almighty God. And one of the questions you're going to have to answer is, what did you do with your life? There's a passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about at the end, everything that you did is going to be hit by fire and judged. The quality of your work will be judged. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared, God has prepared beforehand for us to do. Was it worth it? Is the life you're living right now worthy of your life? All these things that, that this very brilliant, Oxford-educated, doctoral speaker, communicator, yellow sneaker-wearing guy goes all over the country and talks about are the things that have been in the Bible for thousands of years. This is radical truth, but this radical truth doesn't cut the deal unless you have Christ at the very beginning of the communication process. You must be born again. You must be born from above. You must have a whole new life and way of thinking and way of living and way of talking and way of thinking. On the cover of the New Yorker dated tomorrow, there's an interesting picture. Last week we talked about Steve Jobs. Here's a picture of Steve Jobs taken just last week. Okay, there he is checking into heaven on, on an iPad. Okay, I'm so glad to know that there is technology in heaven. I was worried that they would lose track of us. So many people, so many names, we've moved so many times. You change your phone number. How does heaven keep track of all these things on an iPad? So Jobs is checking in and St. Peter's there. And I was a little taken aback that St. Peter still had glasses on. I thought I could get rid of my glasses when I got to heaven. My eyes would be finally 20-20, but uh, I don't know. But here's, here, here's the, the real issue that grabbed me when I saw that cover. The New Yorker could have picked anything to put on the cover of their magazine. This magazine goes all over the world. They could have picked any image, any symbolic reference, but they picked heaven. They pick heaven. Why? Because somewhere in the psyche of men and women, there's still this understanding that we are going somewhere, that we are going to get checked in and checked out, that something has to happen. And it's not going to happen on an iPad. It's going to happen when you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, when you see him high and lifted up on a cross, a cross on which he gave his life for you. And you go, I believe that. I believe he gave his life for me. And then you're going to be born anew and born afresh and born again. And that's going to be the way you think and the way you live and the way you act. And your whole life is the story of Jesus increasing and Jesus growing and you diminishing. The pages of your life will tell a story. What story will they tell? And so radical truth Number two is this. You must be born of the Spirit to get to heaven. The Creator God made a conscious effort of unconditional love to reach out to you and embrace you. As you reach out and embrace Him, He will increase and you will decrease. 
once upon a time, people were trying to figure out how they got here and what they were supposed to do here and where they go from here. They were restless for something and longing for something and searching for something. Jesus said, you must be born from above. That's what we've always been searching for. Dear Heavenly Father, allow us to believe in this radical truth. Allow us to believe in this deep relational understanding of your love and your grace. Allow us to know your Son by believing in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us the honor and the privilege that has nothing to do with who we are or what we do to give our lives to your Son, to be born again by the Spirit, to live a life that's illogically radical in a world that really needs to know the radical truth. Father, take us from this place, allowing us to be more and more of who you need us to be. Let us be your hands and your feet. Let us be a light. Let us be the church. May you increase and may we decrease. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.